Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first of many episodes of American Prestige. Thank you so much uh, for tuning in. Derek and I really appreciate it. Uh, so before we get going, we just like to give everyone a, a little sense of what the pod is going to be about. Uh, my name's Danny Bessner. I'm a historian. I'm a historian of U.S. foreign policy, and I'm uh, really an expert on macro affairs and things like that, the history, theory, and practice of U.S. foreign policy. And I'm joined by my my good friend and co-host, Derek Davison. Derek, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, yeah. So, um, I, I mean, you know, I, I assume most of you already know who I am, but no, I'm just kidding. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I, uh, my background is in, uh, of all things, medieval Iranian history. So I'm well-versed to be talking about U.S. foreign policy in the 21st century. Uh, no, I, I, I mean, that's, I studied Middle East uh, history and, and policy for uh, several years too long at the University of Chicago. And I've been writing about U.S. foreign policy and international affairs generally for, man, uh, also a long time now, I guess, uh, six or seven years now. And uh, I've had my newsletter, Foreign Exchanges, at Substack for... Uh, a little bit over two years now. So, uh, yeah, I kind of, you know, deal with the nitty gritty of what's happening in the world. And so what we're going to do is we're going to provide you all with uh, a sense of what's going on in the world with international affairs, how the United States is responding to it, and then also give you some uh, interviews with experts who understand what's going on in the world and why the United States is doing what it does. And, and hopefully we'll answer that age-old question, how many countries is the United States bombing this week? And so we, we really appreciate you joining us uh, on this journey, uh, on, this, on, this, on this path through the world that we're going to be taking. So we're also uh, thank you. Uh, we also much. want to have beef. I want to have beef. Oh, we'll definitely have beef. I, it's I almost have, natural. People, <laughs> given people our think I'm like an affable guy. I have a dark side. I'm planning to exercise on this show. Yeah, the main want, reason. <laughs> I don't want beef with any other like shows or anything, but I would like to have beef with like a country. Yeah, I think like, just we a should small actually pick... country that that I'm in a feud with. Yeah, I think this week maybe Luxembourg. We have a beef with Luxembourg. Luxembourg beef of the week. is good. Like Norway or uh, San Marino is a very small country that I think gets off, you know, scot free. Yeah, no. But we don't want to. We don't want to. We don't want to hit too much above our weight. You know, we, we got to pick those smaller <laughs> countries. We yeah, don't want to well, get like, out. Uh, Michael Ledeen, the famous neoconservative uh, writer, used to say that the United States should pick a small country every ten years and bash it against the wall. Just to show that's, the rest of the world that we need mean business. That's good uh, stuff, and and that's so, the sort of yeah. stuff we'll be uh, we'll be exploring <laughs> on this. I think that should be an operating principle for us. Yeah, that's in the Constitution of American Prestige. Desk. 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 Desk.
I don't know if you saw this, Derek, but H.R. McMaster has released a wonderful <laughs> yeah. uh, op-ed today in which he blames the uh, the media for the United States' failure to, I don't know, democratize Afghanistan, to to take it over, to, to make it our 51st state. I, I don't precisely know exactly what he wanted, but what's, what's going on in Afghanistan now, and, and, and why is H.R., uh, fellow history PhD, I might add, uh, H.R., UNC history PhD, uh, we only he, they should they should ask for that back. Actually, the university should. <laughs> we we uh, only we only do our best. But what what's going on in, in Afghanistan? And is is it actually are we actually coming to an end? Do you think of this twenty year uh, extravaganza? I, yeah, I'm I'm skeptical about that. I think we're coming to a a change. It is an end just in in some ways. I mean, I, I think legitimately there will not be uh, a, a an, an offensively capable uh, american ground force in afghanistan there will not be a, a major um air presence in afghanistan now um there will be you know as the the withdrawal is either already complete and we're not acknowledging it or like 90 to 95 percent complete you get different answers from uh different media outlets uh, i think it's probably done and we're just sort of pretending there's this like lingering 10 percent that that uh because it you know gives the taliban a little pause and it helps kind of buoy the afghan government a bit and right, and this is something that the United States has been doing for decades, famously the decent interval strategy in Vietnam, right? Which is the idea by the early 1970s, everyone knows South Vietnam is not going to be, you know, this vibrant state that is going to challenge communism. Right, right. So what, what happens is the United States, and this is something that we see throughout history, uh, will repeatedly like essentially say we're leaving, but just give us give us a little bit of time, you know, don't embarrass us so much, <laughs> right? We need, and, and it was called the decent interval between U.S. withdrawal and the total collapse of what essentially could, in many regards, be understood as a U.S. puppet regime. And I think we're seeing something similar now. And, you know, because, Derek, it relates to American prestige, right? Americans are constantly worried about their their international <laughs> prestige and what's going on. So th that seems to be what's going on in Afghanistan right now. There's this, like, sort of muddled area, uh, and everyone kind of knows the Taliban is going to retake everything. Karzai essentially said this. Former Afghan president, uh, Afghani president Karzai has uh, essentially said this. And so we're now waiting for a decent interval before things go uh, totally uh, in the direction that we promised they wouldn't go. Is that correct? Do you think I'm right there? Um, I mean, I certainly think the, the Taliban, uh, you know, will, if they're prepared to, to do what, what it needs to be done. And, and I mean, that that's a, uh, that's a question because the Taliban wants to be the legitimate government of Afghanistan when this is all over. I mean, they, they're, they're not, nihilists they're not there to just sort of plow afghanistan into dust and and call it a day um so the question is how far are they going to be willing to go how violent are they going to be willing to get to say take kabul uh, eventually and and knowing that that the more violent they get the less legitimacy they're likely to have with the afghan people and and you know this is already a group that to the extent that you can do any polling in Afghanistan, you know, the, they're not popular. They're not like people are not like, hey, let's have the Taliban take over again. That was a good time. Um, so they, they do need to be cognizant of that to some degree. 
Um, and and I, you know, that that leads to all sorts of questions about how how much factionalization is there inside the Taliban because we you know we tend to treat them as a as a monolith in a sense and they do they are a, a very coherent group relatively speaking for for that type of organization um but they're also you know riding a wave of success they've captured uh you know a, a, almost half the country at this point if you go on a district by district uh, basis. They've swept through the northern part of Afghanistan, which was the the seat of the resistance to them during uh, in the 1990s when they previously ruled Afghanistan. And a lot um, of heroin what goes through the north, right? Is that yeah, correct? Yeah. Well, some goes through the north, some goes through the 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 Iranian border, but they've also they've also made moves on the Iranian border as well. Um, you know, they're they're right now, you know, trying to take over an entire province or at least the provincial capital in uh, Bagus province in the west. And if they do that, that would be, you know, probably their, you know, most impressive victory to date. So they there there's no pressure at this point on the Taliban that would expose weaknesses or, or kind of, you know, disagreements between, let's say, a, like a moderate faction and a, a more hardline faction. But as they get closer to uh, the goal, I mean, I've seen, you know, some some people write about this. There is there is a possibility that uh, you will start to see some divergence of, of viewpoints about, you know, what do we want? What do we want here? Do we want a negotiated settlement with us in the ascendance, you know, kind of leveraging our military uh, strength to to achieve a favorable peace deal, or do we want to just conquer the whole thing? Uh, and I, I don't know. I mean, you, there may be some some uh, disagreement about that at some point. Right, and of course, this is coming after what is it now? Forty two years of almost to total and complete chaos from the Soviet invasion of seventy nine. Yeah, I mean, um, it's never been the, the country's never not been at war pretty much since since then. Yeah, from the like the gigantic imperial powers on Earth. So, and 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 again, I just think like it, it's important to underline the absolute absurdity of the United States being in this region, uh, being in this country for twenty years, um, and and, and having absolutely <laughs> almost nothing to do, nothing to nothing to show for it. I mean, to be left at this point. I mean, I, there, there's now the the I see you know I I, I feel like the there's a new trend kind of countering people like H.R. McMaster to say, uh, you know, that the U.S. military is uh, kind of met, screwing around with this withdrawal um, in a way that's, you know, it meant to sort of maximize the chaos and maximize the dysfunction right. and embarrass the Biden administration because they're mad. They're mad that they're being pulled out and, uh, you know, they're not going to be policing what I guess we're supposed to regard as the frontier of the empire anymore. Um, and, and I, you know, that, that's not out of the question. And certainly this has been managed in a way that I, from the outside doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, you had Donald Trump announce last year that he was going to have all us forces out by May 1st. I mean, it was in a deal that, that, uh, uh, Zalmay Khalilzad signed along with the Taliban, the Taliban, uh, to to have a full withdrawal by May first, twenty twenty one. So that they had from, and that deal was signed at the end of February. So they had all that time to prepare for a withdrawal uh, on May first, and to do it in a way that was not just like 
let's, you know, like, like as haphazard as this has looked, Biden came into office and kind of repudiated a little bit that agreement, but still said, you know, we're going to be out by September 11th. That's the new deadline. So a few more months to kind of manage this process. And yet you still have like the story this week was uh, the U.S. withdrew from Bagram Air Base, which has been the main U.S. platform in Afghanistan uh, for almost the entire time that the U.S. military has been there. Uh, the, the story was that they just like left in the middle of the night and didn't tell anybody. They didn't tell anything Afghan. And I, I think that's a little bit hard to believe because there's like a prison uh, at Bagram that houses hundreds of Taliban fighters. So I don't think they would have just, I don't think it's reasonable to, to think <laughs> they, they, that they just, just left the key chain. <laughs> it. Right. Just left like the key under the mat. And like, you know, we don't know if these guys are going to get under fed. the mat. Yeah. We don't know if they're going to try to escape, whatever. It's not our problem. I, I, I think that's a bit unrealistic. I'm sure they, there was some notice given to somebody in the Afghan government, but clearly the military unit that was meant to come in and occupy the base was not informed and regard despite that despite the, the fact that there was no managed handover the u.s just, military just bugged out uh, and that kind of thing speaks to a level of disorganization that's almost hard to believe given how long these guys have known this was coming and this to me is i think a shift that we haven't fully grappled with i, I do believe that one of the consequences of the trump administration and just basically not having a commander-in-chief who has the wherewithal will or interest in, in sort of governing this far-flung military empire could have begun to basically instantiate a culture in which the military becomes more and more independent and i think this is one of the big stories of the last 75 years is a, the essential emergence of the military as an independent foreign policy actor in terms of politics which of course it's not supposed to be at all in, in relation to the Constitution or in relation to the you know fabled American norms. But I wouldn't be surprised if that the Trump administration initiated this, particularly given the fact that it's an all-volunteer force. There's so many private contractors. There's such a diffusion of authority and responsibility that we'll, beginning, we'll, we'll begin to see more and more of these basically unexplainable and bizarre uh, or seemingly bizarre uh, military resistance in a sense to, to large scale yeah <laughs> tantrum, tantrum political political to political choices and that's pretty right. frightening actually cuz one of the reasons is. One of the reasons that I wasn't like particularly worried about January 6th is that there's no charismatic military general to take advantage of the discontent. But if you know, if you begin replacing some of these faceless military people like Mike Mullen or even Petraeus with someone who actually has some sort of charisma, that, <laughs> that could be a recipe. Right. right. Someone who's like appealing in any way, you know, an Eisenhower or even a Grant, you know, I think that could be that could be a real recipe for something pretty dangerous and something pretty scary. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think, uh, you know, with respect to Afghanistan, the 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 issue to me is like, yeah, OK, I, I can buy the argument that the military is intentionally screwing up this this withdrawal. But it feels like that's where we're going to land in terms of like what went wrong. And the fact of the matter is like it's been 20 years and you haven't built anything durable in this country. It's so uh, crazy. It's, it's not the last six months that did us in here. Like when the Taliban rolls through or whatever, the, you know, happens if, if they wind up in power, whether it's through a negotiation or, or military conquest, uh, it's not because of the last six months. It's because of the entire 20 years in which you completely failed to, in, you know, inculcate any kind of uh, institution that could survive the U.S. withdrawal. And, and the, you know, that's the question about 
people who who are complaining about this, like McMaster, uh, complaining about the withdrawal. Like, what is what is the the alternative after twenty years? It's just permanent. You just say that's it. We're going to put a little, uh, you know, sideways eight and call it an infinite deployment, and and that's Essentially, it. We're never leaving. And I think what you said about the frontier is something really important here because uh, a, f- a year or two ago, Max Boot wrote an op-ed. Where he said something along he the lines, he openly said it, right? Yeah. No, this was that was his 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 overt argument was this is the frontier of empire and we need to police it and it needs to be permanent, right? And he he made the explicit reference to the so called Indian Wars, right? And what 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 that refers to is essentially the hundreds of years of genocide and uh, you know right. uh, displacement that made the United States expand west. And I think that literally people like McMaster and Max Boot, that is what they are arguing for. They want a permanent garrison uh, in the frontier of an empire that would take hundreds of years to essentially make Afghanistan, you know, uh, uh, probably not a state for, for racialized reasons, but but uh, effectively a part of the U.S. empire. That's what they want. And I think that they, like, it, it, that Max Boot essay obviously was morally disgusting, but it was useful in sort of revealing what the actual project was. The problem, though, is that I think unlike uh, an after Vietnam, which essentially lasted the same amount of time, if you think since the U.S. took over from the French in 1954 um, and then lasted until 75 with the final, uh, that's when Saigon fell, I believe, in 75, um, that uh, Afghanistan, roughly 20, maybe it'll be 21 years by, by the time it's all done. It's the same exact thing. But unlike in Vietnam, the establishment of an all-volunteer force essentially led Afghanistan to be fought primarily not with the bourgeoisie. So I think whereas in Vietnam we had the reaction of you know the the, the church hearings and sort of the 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 war powers resolution in 73 etc cetera, etc cetera, I don't think we're going to see any of that. I think this will be swept under the rug and I think people will just remember it as a bad dream and the United States is just as likely to get into another Afghanistan as it is to not. Well, and it hasn't, I mean, it's not, it hasn't even been fought by a wide swath of the volunteer force for years. I mean, it's been right. several years right. since this was a major uh, war from the perspective of how many active duty U.S. soldiers are in combat at any given time. It's been mostly the Afghan military with U.S. air support. Um, and, and that's even more kind of out of sight, out of mind for people in the United States. It's like, okay, well, there's, there was an airstrike and... Uh, you know, 20 people were killed. Maybe some of them were Taliban fighters. Maybe some of them were, you know, Islamic State <laughs> operatives. Uh, maybe, you know, 12 of them were farmers who were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But, we, you know, one of the things that's sort of a bedrock principle of, of uh, the U.S. of U.S. foreign policy and politics is we don't care, really, when it's not an American dying. It's It's not as a nation. It's not high on our list of things to worry about. I think that's right. And I think as we wrap up here, it's important to emphasize this last point about air support. Um, I think this is going to be a shift to managed hegemony. I think we're going to see fewer and fewer quote unquote, boots on the ground, certainly the volunteer force. I think you'll, you'll see special forces and you'll see private contractors. I think that's a whole nother world we're going to have to get into at some point. Uh, but I think we're going to see a big turn to basically air policing and air surveillance in the frontiers of the empire. And of course, this has a long history going back to uh, the first drone or drone, drone-esque um, uh, 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 
flying aircraft were, were used in Iraq, were used in the Middle East by essentially the um, you know the, the the European powers, and I think we're going to still be in that sort of air surveillance, air support world uh, going forward. So that's a pretty you know uh, happy place to end on. Um, I think that we'll be talking more about what's going on in Afghanistan in the future. And I think now would be a, a good time to turn to our interview uh, with Stephen Wertheim, who recently left the Quincy Institute uh, for uh, the Carnegie Endowment. And uh, we look forward to seeing you all next week. Welcome to the first of what will no doubt be uh, many interviews coming over the next few years, decades, centuries, and millennia. I'm very happy and proud to be here with my good friend and colleague, uh, Stephen Wertheim, who left the historical profession, who betrayed his colleagues that he he spent years getting to know uh, to join the, uh, the blob. <laughs> Treasonous. Benedict Arnold of, of the histor- historical profession. To, Sullying uh, basically- the academy like this. Oh, I didn't get tenure. Yeah, what a betrayal it was <laughs> yes what 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 a betrayal uh to to uh, to join the, the ranks of the uh foreign policy world and Stephen, before we get to the conversation is currently the senior fellow at the american statecraft program at the carnegie endowment for international peace and author of tomorrow the world which was released by harvard university press so Stephen, thank you very much for being here and for taking the time really appreciate it man my pleasure And so before we get into the interview, I I wanted to ask you a bit of a biographical question because something that I think you've noticed and that I've noticed over time and that we've talked about is that there's a big generational divide between, I'd say, roughly people over 40 and people under 40 uh, in in all of politics and its relationship to socialism, but also in how people uh, understand the U.S. and its approach to the world. So what politicized you? What got you interested in devoting yourself to studying uh, U.S. foreign policy? Well, I was always interested in American politics. One of my earliest recollections was playing in a laundry hamper while the Berlin Wall was collapsing. So I did not grow up with the Cold War. I think that's notable for the under 40 generations. And then uh, as I was uh, in high school, 9-11 happened. It happened, um, the Pentagon was not far from my own high school, though I don't know that that's necessary to making me interested in American foreign policy. And um, I also paid a lot of attention at that time to the debate over whether the United States should invade Iraq. Um, and although I, you know, I, I, th- I think I waffled, I don't have any great prescience to uh, claim, I thought that something was kind of wrong about that debate. And it was very difficult for me as a really attentive citizen at that time to feel like I had a good grasp of the issues at stake. So the interest in American foreign policy, I think, was pretty much in place when I went to college. And so was an interest in the public debate surrounding foreign policy. So, like, it's, I think it's hard, you know, especially if we have younger listeners to get a sense of, like, what was going on at the time. Because it, I, I was also in high school. I think I was a senior in high school when 9-11 happened. And then I was a freshman in college during the invasion of Iraq. And I just remember it being, like, pretty much cooked for Iraq. That that there was there was really no debate worth speaking of. Derek, I don't know if you remember, but you were a little bit older than us, older and wiser and more beautiful in every sense of the word. Uh, but like, <laughs> what was going on in sort of the establishment at that time? To me, it was just like, 
we're going to Iraq and everyone who didn't believe that is, is you know, an eater of French fries as opposed to freedom fries and things along those lines. Uh, yeah, it was a really bizarre time. I mean, people think that like the Trump era was weird, but I, I think if you weren't kind of alive and, and politically kind of conscious in that era, it's hard to explain just how surreal it was. It was like we had this thing happen. It was a major attack. Obviously, you know, more Americans died than any blah, 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 whatever, uh, by a group of people who were affiliated with a, a total non-state actor, which was admittedly based in Afghanistan. OK, uh, most of them were Saudis. We're going to go to war with Iraq. And it's like it was just like from that point on, it was so surreal. Uh, it was just so obvious that these people were working out an extended uh, kind of fantasy of overthrowing Saddam Hussein. W you know, regardless of what what the actual situation was, they were just looking for an excuse to do this thing that they'd been like thirsting to do for for so long. And correct um, me if I'm wrong, but Bill Clinton signed the Iraq Liberation Act in 1998. Right. Oh, yeah. So this was I mean, like a bipartisan thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Clinton administration was awful to, to the Iraqi people. I mean, the sanctions, there was, you know, Madeleine Albright talking about, oh, it's worth it that, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people starved to death because, you know, we're going to uh, bring peace and freeance. That's a Bushism. You can look it up to the Middle East. But, you know, I mean, it, it was it was weird the whole time. It was like we had this fixation on this guy who ran a country that was relatively unimportant before the Gulf War. There was a lot of hype about how big and bad their military was, but it was like, you know, I mean, it, it was just this weird hyper fixation on Saddam, which I think represented a lot of other agendas that people had in mind that they, they felt uh, it was easier to just talk about him. So, Stephen, uh, as you're attending, correct me if I'm wrong, Harvard College. Um, Mazel tov. Uh, Again, what was the you, tenor? You, have, you have tenure, so I'm, I'm not going to be uh, <laughs> treated like this. Yes. No, I'm sorry. Yes. I, I, that's, that's punching down. I need to hold myself accountable. I'm, I'm sorry, everyone. But what was the tenor at, at a hyper elite space like Harvard? I mean, what's going on there? How are people reacting to this? I was actually a senior in high school uh, in the spring of 2003. Uh, so I hadn't got to college yet. And you're right, like over the course of my college years, most Americans came to the view that we screwed up royally in our response to 9-11, especially over the invasion of Iraq. Um, but I would say that the student body, I mean, it was very much dominated by people who wanted to go into consulting, right. uh, banking, and everything else. And then there were like a couple people who were like protesting who just would like find a lot of things to protest and then um, a lot of apathy. Right. It's like, I think it's difficult for, for, you know, younger people today to understand, like it was really a depolitical or even an apolitical era in the 1990s and 2000s. You, you said something that reminded me of something that I would say at the time that there were people who protested Iraq, but they would kind of protest everything, right? There was this sense that there was like, it was almost ridiculous to be, you know, like so anti-establishment as it was, which is obviously something that we don't have today. So how did, you know, your evolution change over the course of your time in college? And then, you know, what did you decide to do with your life? What made you make that awful choice to go to graduate school? <laughs> yeah, I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, the evolution is a little bit easier. Uh, you know, that was gradual. It, it didn't just happen. I mean, on foreign policy, I think it happened first. 
um, because the war in Iraq was such a disaster and so was the wider war on terror and kind of like all the all the stuff associated with it, that became clear, I would say, first. But again, you know, what exactly I thought could and should be done with America's role in the world, that comes later with further study. And then, of course, the financial crisis destroys the credibility of elites on the economic side and then the failure to deal with both, to hold people accountable for both kinds of disasters. Um, you know, that's, for me, what does the trick. And so it's really over the course of the aughts, I would say, that my my politics uh, solidifies. I don't think I'm, like, special at all in this. I think I'm probably describing where a lot of Americans my age and even some that are of different generations uh, have, have gone. Well, this is, I mean, this is part of the kind of environment of the early aughts that, you know, we came out of the 90s when, um, you know, everything after the, the 1994 election was basically Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich yelling at each other in public, but governing together behind the scenes, like working pretty much in collaboration with one another to dismantle, you know, a lot of the welfare state and, and you know, other kind of safeguards on banking and that sort of thing. And then, uh, you know, you had the 2000 election, which was kind of bitter in the way that it shook out. But in the run up to the election, you know, a lot of the kind of overall tenor of that election was, you know, there's not really that much difference between these guys. Gore's kind of a centrist. Bush, you know, he's got this compassionate conservative thing, whatever that means. Um, you know, there was, yeah, there was like some pent up bitterness about the, the shakeout of the election in the Supreme Court. Um, but then, you know, 9-11 happened not long after, just a few months later. And, and you know, Bush's approval rating after 9-11 went into the 90s. I mean, it was a, you know, he was, uh, there was a huge rally around the flag thing. And, and it was only over the next several years with the botched, you know, kind of response or I, I hesitate to say botched because it was deliberately done. Um, you know, they, they botched certain aspects of it, but going into Iraq was a choice, um, you know, and the, the then the financial crisis and, you know, kind of everybody got excited for Obama or a lot of people got excited for Obama. It was sort of a return to politics in a sense. And then, you know, he didn't really do it. I mean, he didn't manage the, the economic crisis any differently and his foreign policy was not that much there i mean you know he was uh, except for iraq really uh and and you know i think now yeah there's definitely a sense of like what is the point here and it's it's different from the 90s in the sense that at that time it was like everybody's working together and isn't this great bipartisanship or whatever uh and now there's sort of a, a disillusion with everything and, and it's on the other end of the scale but the effect is the same there's like you know it's just a a lack of politics now yeah and i think that's right and people i think misremember the obama campaign as being anti-war but like uh, i've been punishing myself and going back and reading a lot of those speeches and reading a lot of those policy documents and it's really not it's very explicit obama repeatedly makes the point but um that he distinguishes between dumb wars and smart wars basically implying that afghanistan was like this really smart war and it was only this moronic his uh, his nobel peace prize acceptance right. speech was a defense of war i mean that's that's the level that you're dealing with it was it was in shockingly for the the venue was was defensive it was a defensive war the, the the key foreign policy pitch that obama made in that campaign was uh we're going to get out of iraq we're going to do that in large part in order to focus on our real enemies 
and the real war that matters, which is Afghanistan. And remember, he said in the campaign that if we had intelligence that Osama bin Laden was in Pakistan and, you know, the Pakistani government wouldn't cooperate, we would still go after him anyway. So he, he tried to take a more hawkish approach against al-Qaeda or on the war on terror itself, just trying to— right show that Iraq was a distraction from that. Yeah, I mean, that was the Democratic attack on Bush was that he dropped the ball on the real bad guys to to go do this other right, thing. Right, which was a, a message that was like displayed in The Daily Show. I remember it's like, Bush is a moron. If we only had the right guys in there, we'd really, you know, take it to Al-Qaeda, which is, a you know, this big, just, you know, for people listening, this post-McGovern um, campaign shift in the Democratic Party, post-LBJ, post-McGovern, where, where the Democrats always try to out-hawk uh, the Republicans. But Stephen, to return to your bio for a second— and 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 I believe this is this is actually interesting because one of the thing that things that I've noticed that you and I have also talked about a bunch is how like so many of the public intellectuals today seem to be historians. Why is there this like big entrance into history graduate programs in 2008 and 2009 of the people who would then come to you know be some of the major critics of the American Empire amongst the millennial generation in you know 2015, 2016, 2017? That to me seems an interesting historical phenomenon. Well, start from the fact that historians were basically written out of the public sphere. I mean, it used to be that a major public intellectual in like the middle of the 20th century could as well be a historian as anything else. So the Charles Beards of the world are basically done, uh, with very few exceptions. So in the 1990s, I think you have a lot of confidence in elites uh, and a kind of technocratic uh, expertise is valued uh, in the public sphere as well as part of that. And so our politics have changed. Uh, we've come into a moment where no matter who you are, basically, you were surprised that Donald Trump could be the Republican nominee in 2016 and then was elected president. And then you were probably surprised by a lot of things that happened over the course of the Trump era. And so we've come to a point where our space for politics and for imagination is open, then I think that creates uh, in a, an environment where uh, people actually want some orientation. Um, they don't feel oriented. And historians are well suited to give that orientation and to say that actually it's not so odd and not so bad that we're having to deal with issues that we thought uh, weren't on the agenda before. And so what would you say that major issue is? And I think this brings us to, to your book. So so what is your book about? And, and really, what do you think is the major, you know, super macro question about American foreign policy that people listening should be asking themselves? Well, for me, the issue is, uh, should the United States continue to pursue uh, global military dominance? This is what I grew up with. This is just what we did. It was uh, basically beyond question. You could not be a serious person with a real voice in public life or politics and think that the United States shouldn't have military alliances across the globe, outspend the next many, many countries combined on its military, hold itself responsible for enforcing so-called world order. And I wanted to know when I was in grad school, not expecting this agenda to have much purchase, right, in our day to day. 
Um, but maybe sometime in the future it would become relevant. You know, I wanted to know, well, why, why do we pursue this world role axiomatically? It's the foundation of, um, of our thinking on foreign policy. To secure military primacy, people in Washington say, what do we need to do? Not starting with the question of what do the American people need and want in the world? Uh, and is that the same thing as pursuing American military dominance? So my book looks at what I take to be the actual decision uh, for military dominance, which happened actually in a short period of time, uh, 1940 and 41, uh, in about 18 months between the fall of France to Nazi Germany and uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor that got the United States into the war. And it was at that time that a set of uh, officials and intellectuals came to think that the United States should cast off its traditional aversion to what were then called military entanglements in Europe and Asia, and instead uh, be the premier power trying to enforce world order uh, in principle on a global scale. And what I show is that they were not just responding to the immediate uh, issues of the war and thinking about whether the United States should enter the war and in what fashion, but they were looking far ahead uh, to ask what kind of post-war world role should America play. And I think essentially we've been living within those parameters ever since, but it's become more apparent and more troubling over the course of our lifetimes uh, because uh, totalitarian conquerors the Axis powers and then the Soviet Union and Soviet-backed communism fell away. I mean, the so Soviet Union completely collapsed, and yet the United States pursued in some ways uh, a greater military dominance than ever before. And I think that is fundamentally what has produced uh, endless wars, what produced the kind of reaction to 9-11 that we've been talking about. Uh, and that is bound to set us up, I fear, for more trouble now in a world where you have significant powers like China uh, rising to a degree that uh, wasn't the case uh, back in the 1990s when American foreign policy makers thought that there would be very few costs and risks to all these actions that they wanted the United States to take. So why did we make that choice? What do you, this is like the big hinge point of history. There was talks of a peace dividend in the early 1990s. There's even talks of, I don't even want to mention it, it's so frightening, of NATO being disbanded, you know, of the United States not having access to hundreds of military bases and things along those lines. So this is like a, the big question. Why did we pursue global military dominance, particularly, I might add, in an era where, you know, you, you see, I would say, real stagnation in the American economy, the explosion of Credit in the late 1970s, you have deindustrialization, you have offshoring. So what is basically the choice for empire and how do you see that related to the choice for neoliberalism, which Clinton really, you know, puts the, uh, you know, uh, puts the pedal to the metal on? So I'm still thinking this through. I mean, the relationship between empire and neoliberalism, I think, isn't simple at all, because uh, I think it's actually rather hard to see why you need the empire in order for a neoliberal global economy to do its thing. So let me just say, I think that's an open question um, that I'm not done thinking about. I think with respect to the attachment to military dominance, 
you know, you might look at this on two different levels. On a material level, the United States had built up what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex. That created concentrated interests that had a strong stake in the United States being extremely militarily powerful, not necessarily in doing specifically X or Y toward this country, but you need some countries to be doing something to in order to keep that thing going. And there were a lot of jobs, including in a uh, deindustrializing context, uh, that uh, remained attached to um, defense production as they do today. So let's start with that condition. And then on an... So that's a... I just want to highlight, that's a domestic condition. That has nothing to do with U.S. security. That has nothing to do with U.S. safety. And I think this is a theme we're going to be returning to in the show, which is the domestic origins of a lot of U.S. foreign policy that, that I would say, I don't know, Derek, if you agree, that are then smuggled through a security logic effectively, where you have the creation, I would say. I would say, Stephen, I don't know if you agree. I don't think the Soviet Union was ever an existential threat, particularly after the mid-1950s. I think the United States was always more dominant, but you have this these domestic interests basically being smuggled through a language of security. And I just want to emphasize because I think that's a really important um, point. But sorry to interrupt. So you have the you know the first the domestic interests, right? So already very little incentive for political elites to uh, be serious in dismantling what had been built up, even though the U.S. did actually cut its defense spending across the 1990s as a percentage of of GDP. So it kind of looked like there was a little peace dividend, even as the U.S. actually proliferated security commitments uh, and uh, began to intervene more frequently since 1991 than it actually did during the Cold War itself. But I digress. So the second <laughs> thing is on an ideological level or an intellectual level uh, for People in positions of power, their reading of things was, well, the U.S. was isolationist after 1919. That, that, like 1919 was another pivotal moment for the world. That was a disaster. The what US, happens? Just explain to people what, what happens in 1919. So World War I ends. What uh, actually happens is that uh, President Wilson proposes uh, this League of Nations which he wanted the United States to join. The Senate did not join uh, the League of Nations for lots of reasons. Um, but what didn't happen was that isolationists wanted the U.S. to play no part in world affairs. That's the, that's the myth. Um, people didn't even talk really about isolationism at the time. Far less are there like any people who were just saying, United States should do nothing abroad. There was a vibrant interest in American cultural exchange, uh, capitalist exchange, uh, and uh, the U.S., you know, resumed its traditional role with respect to uh, the military, policing uh, the Western Hemisphere, right, as right, well as right. governing the Philippines as a colony. Right. Like, this is what's so crazy. Whenever people make the isolationist claim, it's like, 
the United States controlled half of the fucking world, you know, and also had a, the, a colony in the Philippines. So it's it's just so bizarre. I mean, and this, I, again, this is something we're going to be returning to again. The Eurocentrism of so much American foreign policy analysis is really insane, where you could just write off the entire continent of Latin America, of South America, rather, and Latin uh, Central and South America uh, as as being still isolationist. And I think that's an important point that that we want to emphasize. But so, so yeah, so that happened. And um, so then people, again, have this they have this bugaboo, uh, this fear of, of isolationism that is constantly referred to in the 1990s, I imagine, that, that people are constantly worried about that. Right. And it's rooted that fear, as I show in the book, is rooted in the 30s and 40s when the people who actually come to favor U.S. global military dominance call their opponents isolationists. Um, and so if, if anyone's an isolationist, it would be surely the America Firsters in 1940 and 41 who didn't want the United States to join World War II. Uh, those are the quintessential people. They wanted the United States to uh, defend the entire Western Hemisphere. So ask Central Americans uh, whether that sounds like isolationism to them. So this conceptualization is formed and what American policymakers tell themselves, uh, and many Americans tell themselves, uh, in 1945 is that the country has cast off its isolationism, learned its lesson, and embraced internationalism, right, now equated with global military dominance. And so in uh, 1991, or in the uh, years when the Soviet Union was coming apart, what policymakers said was, well, okay, basically, we don't want the 1919 route. That's isolationism. We want the 1945. And so let's complete the project uh, that we set out to achieve before the Cold War happened uh, as of 1945, where we have one world united under American supervision. Uh, and so I think that basic um, conceptualization of the world and America's place in it um, helps to explain why the United States didn't reap the peace dividend after 1991. Uh, and it helps. We remember, what you have to explain isn't just that action. It's why there was almost no thought given to taking that course of action, too. That, that course of action would have been beyond the pale. I think, uh, you know, well, first of all, I, I'm, I'm surprised you didn't say job security was the reason why everybody was becoming historians, <laughs> because, you know, obviously there's a lot of that. But um, secondly, it might be might be helpful to remind people that uh, our third president, Thomas Jefferson, went to war with North Africa at the turn of the, you know, at the start of the 19th century, um, you know, before the War of 1812, which I realize is cast as this sort of defense of America, even though it involved an invasion of Canada. Um, but we were at war with the Barbary states, which, you know, you know, all the way over there, but it's, you know, it's still cast as this sort of, uh, the United States was isolationist. Again, I think you're right. It's, it's a Eurocentric, uh, way of looking at the world. When you talk about military entanglements, that phrase, as it gets used for you know the first uh, you know 150 years or so of, of American history, is it means stay out of Europe. It doesn't mean don't get involved in Latin America. It doesn't mean don't uh, you know go to war with the Barbary states. It means stay out of European affairs, basically. 
And that even becomes in American culture, like the Marine Corps song from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. Sure, it's right there. Yeah, it's right, right. in the it's song. Right That's right there. But this is what just annoys me so much about like the Eikenberry Doidney piece. Um, apologies, I'm getting the pronunciation of that name incorrect. Um, but it's just like so focused on where the empire was good. I have to say, if you're in France, if you're in the UK, if you're in the FRG, West Germany, it's a pretty good thing to be under, you know, in the U.S. imperial sphere. Uh, and I think, you know, if you're looking back on this history in 1500 years, you might even effectively say from Germany to the West, it's like there's a North Atlantic polity that is developing over time. And you can view the world wars as a type of civil war in some sense. But that's for another time. Uh, but it totally writes out the the other things that are happening, and particularly in the Philippines, where the United States fought a brutal counterinsurgency campaign um, that, that was uh, uh, defined by horrible racism. You know, the water cure, i.e. waterboarding and things that would, you know, become foundational uh, to the American uh, experience. But Stephen, uh, Jacques Hughes, how dare you? Don't you know that Trump has destroyed the liberal international order and that everything that we have done uh, for, for the world ha has been taken apart? Um, so what do you think? How do you think Trump fits into this larger story that you're telling? Because when he was elected, this was the big fear, right? The United, the abandonment of the liberal international order, uh, foreign affairs, foreign policy. All of these places were publishing these pieces about how Trump was his big shift. So what do you think? I, I want to ask first, what do you think that reaction, which to, 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 I know to both of uh, to all three of us seemed overblown at the time. What do you think that was a reflection of? Fear. So I still don't know what the liberal international order is. Um, in fact, that phrase came it's into the rules based why, international order yeah. now. So it's even Rule, it's even more rules obscure. based U.S. led rules based liberal international order. Just keep on adding adjectives to distract the US people. U.S. led post-war rules based liberal international order. That's all the adjectives. Yeah, that's all. The, um, yeah, so you can pick and choose from those. Very few people were actually talking about that thing before Trump. Right. So this tradition is brought into being, at least in those terms, right, suddenly in reaction to Trump. My reading of it is that, well, first in the campaign, a lot of people wanted to exclude Trump, um, just knock him out by saying he's an isolationist. And then when he used the phrase America first and he made noises about wars in the Middle East, and he questioned alliances. It all seemed to be falling into place. Can't question uh, alliances. That's number one rule. To question an no. alliance is to be beyond the pale. It is the most annoying. To, to even question it is, and then we could talk about your NATO piece, but it's so yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. Sorry, Stephen. They're sacred. No, I mean, yeah, I, I think sacred. we just need Beautiful. to rebrand NATO. Um, and if you just call it by OTAN, like that will get people off their <laughs> attachment to NATO. They, they love um, it. They love it, folks. <laughs> So, so first there was this attempt to just say, look, Trump is beyond the pale, but it didn't work. Um, if anything, it seemed to confirm to certain voters that Trump was indeed as different from the status quo as he claimed to be, which he wasn't. And then it became a line of attack used to basically equate U.S.-led multilateralism with U.S. military primacy, as if those two things um, go together naturally. Could you expand on that a bit? What do you, what do you, what's U.S.-led multilateralism? What are you referring to there? So, you know, when Trump does uh, things like pull out of the WHO 
One of his earlier ones was to pull out of UNESCO, et cetera. Which the U.S. has done before, I, I might add. The U.S. has pulled out of UNESCO before. I For think the, the same Reagan. reason. Yeah. For the same reason, by the way. <laughs> Correct. Um, look, many of the things Trump did on foreign policy have precedents that are not even far in the past. Um, even his rhetoric about alliances, like Obama was saying similar things much more politely uh, to ask Europeans to spend more on their defense. Um, so was uh, his secretary of defense, Robert Gates. And then it was how dare Trump, you know, say these things in a nasty way and then wind up in exactly the same place on policy. Right. Uh, the NATO alliance continues and expands under his watch. Alliances, U.S. alliances expanded under the Trump administration and not a single war was ended. Let's just be clear about that fact. But the argument was made uh, specifically, he's out to destroy this U.S.-led, rules-based, post-war, liberal international order and therefore is the antithesis of everything America has been trying to do since, well, the date kind of varied, but 1945 or 1948 or whenever you said this order came into being. And, you know, I, I see this as another attempt to try to rehabilitate uh, U.S. military dominance and make it seem like it's one of the same, uh, essential to um, other forms of international cooperation. And that's what the concept of isolationism, that's what its usage does, because against isolationism, you can seem to want to dominate the world and cooperate with everyone else at the same time. So a question that I have, and I guess this is for both of you guys, is what is sort of the, the um, I'm trying to think of the right word, like th there's almost, it's it's like the like a dowager countess is offended when you even, it's like, how dare you? You know, how, how dare you? There's sort of, the, the, there's a, a cultural element to, um, to people's responses when you make this argument about U.S. foreign policy, which is almost very fragile and very unbelieving. And I was wondering, as you two much more than me have been in the sort of the blob world, is what is the relationship between these people's identities and U.S. foreign policy that they get so offended? How dare you? You know, how dare you suggest that France pay for its security? It's such a strange cultural element to me. I was wondering what you guys thought about that, e either of you. Well, and they didn't, I mean, they didn't complain about asking France to pay for its security when the Obama administration asked. You know, it's really about, I think, this investment in America's image, American prestige, <laughs> as the leader of this rules-based international whatever international order um and and trump um you know was was too much of a buffoon to kind of uh play you know, the the role the the image of of an, an american president is the kind of uh you know grandee of this system um and, and you know he was just a lot cruder about it and that's I think embarrassing on some level to people in the the foreign policy establishment because these aren't necessarily things that they 
don't believe themselves a lot of the things that, that Trump would talk about. These aren't things that, you know, these are things, uh, you know, you talk about sort of in, you know, over a, a, a glass of whiskey or something at the bar, but they're not things that you're supposed to say in public out loud. Uh, and it, it just, you know, it's sort of like, you know, get get that back behind the curtain here. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there's um, a lot of American foreign policy debate is really about American identity. America's leadership role in the world is um, part of how the, uh, the country understands what it is. So when, you know, Hillary Clinton could talk about America's already great in the 2016 campaign, that goes together with the idea that we stand tall in the world we're the you indispensable farther. nation. Yes. Right. This is the Madeleine Albright quote. It's really wacky. She, we said, she basically says in a 1998 interview with, I believe, Matt Lauer, that uh, America stands taller and sees farther. So if people die, it was worth it, essentially. It's something all, along mean, those it, lines. It goes back to Reagan's shining city on the hill rhetoric. I mean, it's the same. It's just different versions of the same thing. America is the you know, example par excellence of, of what humanity should try to be. And, and we have to uh, uphold that image at all times. And Trump was, you know, doesn't <laughs> clearly. I mean, it, it, to the extent that the United States actually upholds that image, uh, which I would question, you know, Donald Trump is clearly not it. Yeah, he um, he openly disavowed American exceptionalism. Not a whole lot of people noticed, actually, on the campaign trail, but uh, he said he didn't like the term. And uh, he consistently presented the United States as in a competitive environment in the world where the United States had no special moral claim uh, to stand over the world. Now, he continued to want the United States to dominate others. So I don't think his rejection of exceptionalism led to a better place at all. Uh, but nevertheless, he did not go for this traditional view of the indispensable nation. And I think that drove people wild. And that's this, the big quote related to that. I'm going to mangle it a little bit, but you know, the, the we're killers too, or we have killers too, which I think that, that through the liberal media establishment, they went apoplectic over that because basically I think the Trump in, in administration in general uh, is just, he literally in every element of his policy uh, made subtext text in his, in, in his in his speeches and in his literal you know justifications for policy, it's just what the actual effects of these things were just used to justify them in a way that no one had ever done before. Um, but you know, thank God, uh, Biden was elected. We could all breathe a sigh of relief. We could we could return to brunch, as the famous saying goes. So, what's your take on sort of the the Biden? <laughs> a Biden world, you know, Blinken, you know, Samantha Power. What, what, what have we seen from them? And is it up to the task uh, of what we need to do in the world right now, Stephen? This might be a bit of a leading question, but what do you think? Well, I don't think it's going to do what I think uh, the United States ought to do. Well, what do they think? What do they think should be done, first of all? Right. So I think they do recognize that um, the country is not necessarily what they thought it was due to the Trump crisis. And I think many of them recognize that there's no going back to the so-called unipolar moment of the 1990s 
where the U.S. could do whatever it wanted and not even worry that other countries would impose costs on us, um, if only because it's clear that China has has uh, risen economically and otherwise in a way that precludes any return to undisputed uh, the undisputed U.S. ability to operate militarily wherever it likes. And I think that undisputed is critical because the U.S. is still so much more militarily powerful than China. It's even a joke to put them in the same sentence. The ring of bases surrounding China, the money. I mean, it, this is it, it, like it literally makes my brain melt out of my ears when I hear these foreign policy establishmentarians worrying about the rise of China when the United States is literally totally dominant in that region. So maybe not totally dominant, not as undisputedly dominant as it was, but I would argue still dominant by any reasonable metric. So I just wanted to underline that, that this, this rise of China is really a construction, I think, to justify further U.S. hegemony, no matter what, no matter the risks and no, no matter the benefits to it. So I just wanted to underline that. So they understand, to return to what Stephen was saying, that the unipolar moment is gone. Yeah. Um, and... Obviously, you know, we've seen several conventional kinds of people like Joe Biden over the last decade uh, because of the realities that we face, including the domestic political realities, do things that you wouldn't have expected them to do, like end the war in Afghanistan after 20 years. It seems to be coming to a close, at least insofar as uh, U.S. ground troops are concerned. We'll have to see about uh, drone strikes, special operations raids. Yeah, my guess those will continue, particularly in the mountainous regions between Pakistan and Afghanistan. I would say indef indefinitely. <laughs> I think it will, but I, I do think it's kind of remarkable that Biden, you know, has decided to withdraw all ground troops and say that the United States is not fundamentally going to hold itself responsible for the uh, who, who rules. Afghanistan or who rules what in Afghanistan. In other words, is to, you know, to put it a little bit more bluntly than he did, if the Taliban, no matter how much uh, of Afghanistan the Taliban rule, we're not going to go to war to stop that uh, so long as there aren't terrorist attacks being plotted or that we say are being plotted, right? So that's a, that is a shift, right? And so my point isn't that like, Biden Absolutely. or the Biden administration is trying to bring about the end of U.S. hegemony. Quite the contrary. I think under changed circumstances, uh, what we're probably seeing is a focus on uh, China in the Indo-Pacific, something that, you know, the Obama administration said it wanted to do a decade ago with the so-called pivot to Asia. And, uh, you know, some degree of drawdowns across the greater Middle East what degree we'll, we'll have to see. Uh, and that, I think, will uh, potentially put U.S. hegemony on a more sustainable basis politically in this country. Uh, and so I don't say this to admire where I think our policy is headed, but I think it does um, create difficulty for those who are concerned uh, about U.S. militarization in the world, because I fear that if if we're heading towards something like a Cold War with China, that uh, potentially could be worse than what we've seen in the last several decades. Uh, now you're dealing with the potential for World War III, 
Um, China is not Iraq. Uh, China can do serious harm uh, in many ways uh, to Americans and to, and to others around the world. So um, the wager is that the United States will be much more disciplined and rational in its approach uh, toward a competitor like China than it has been over the last several decades. What should then be done? What, what's your preferred approach to what U.S. foreign policy should be in the future? Well, I'd like us to uh, draw down pretty much across the board militarily. Uh, you know, first of all, let me say, I think the main international threats that are posed to the American people where they live and work come from climate change and pandemic disease. Actually, I think a lot of people agree with me about that. And if you want to really prioritize those things, then what you should do is to try to obtain as wide a cooperation as possible with other states who need to be included if we're going to be able to manage truly planetary problems. And China looms particularly large on the question of climate change since it is the number one greenhouse gas emitter, uh, and it's not even close. Uh, and I think the fight against climate change would go much better if the U.S. and China can actually cooperate, exchange technology, and also provide some of the best technology to developing countries, which is fair to do and actually necessary uh, in terms of solving the problem. So let's start there, right? And then I would ask, you know, what, what value uh, is our outsized military role. Uh, I think in the greater Middle East, uh, our vital interests, interests worth going to war over, are so incredibly few. You could get down, not only talking about ending wars, but getting down to one, zero military bases uh, in that region. Likewise, it is time to uh, hand the uh, defense of Europe over to the Europeans. This is how. Dare you? I know. I know. How dare you? So could you <laughs> actually just, maybe drill into that? Because you had a recent op-ed in the New York Times uh, where you discussed uh, uh, sort of drawing down NATO and that, you know, everyone was so mad at you in, in the blob. So maybe just dig into that for a second. Yeah. So I actually think the U.S. has made the same strategic mistake in Europe that it's made in the Middle East over the last three decades. It's just that the consequences have been very different. Uh, because of the nature of both regions. Um, like in the Middle East, the United States decided um, to be the dominant military power in that region, even after a plausible threat had collapsed the Soviet Union. It decided to not only do that, but to expand the U.S.-led NATO military alliance, right, uh, to the point where it includes most of Europe, right up to Russia's Borders. Right. It's the equivalent uh, of the Warsaw Pact in Mexico or Canada. That That is an apt uh, analogy, I think. Right. I think we would not react well to a military alliance uh, being uh, in Mexico, helmed by a stronger military power. And even though Europe, because it's prosperous um, and doesn't face uh, a huge threat, um, has remained, you know, basically stable, basically at peace, um, it's getting worse. Um, it's getting worse for reasons that are directly related to the expansion of the U.S.-led NATO military alliance. 
uh, particularly when Georgia and Ukraine uh, uh, were promised NATO membership uh, starting in 2008. That's, I think, uh, an essential context for the armed conflicts that then uh, have taken place, first in Georgia and then Ukraine. So, you know, you have to ask, I mean, look, even if you love uh, European collective defense and you're and a big enthusiast <laughs> of NATO, you have to ask, why is it that the United States um, from afar uh, is best positioned uh, to handle these European issues? Uh, I happen to believe that Germans, French, the British, um, hey, the Italians, I like them. I like them all. I happen to think these are, you know, liberal democracies uh, with a uh, nice uh, welfare state as, as stable uh, as ours, uh, at least as much, uh, and are better positioned to judge threats to themselves and threats to Europe than we are from afar. And it's explicit that the United States thinks that it's better positioned uh, for the indispensable nation uh, reason that Madeleine Albright gave, as, you, as we've talked about. No, that's that's great. So why don't we actually turn to our reading series, and I'll turn it over to my co-host, uh, Derek Davison, to expound upon this wonderful essay that appeared in uh, Foreign Policy <laughs> magazine uh, last week. This and is just a good to give one. Some, yeah, no, it's a classic. And just to give some brief context, uh, th- this essay was written by Daniel uh, Dudney and or Doidney, uh, and John Eikenberry, who are basically, and Stephen, you can correct me if I'm wrong, sort of the dons of the of what might be uh, termed a, a liberal approach to international relations that essentially argues that, you know, multilateral capitalism, multilateral exchange through essentially Western dominated, North, really North Atlantic dominated uh, international institutions are the key to peace. Is there anything to add to that? I can bury that Princeton and Doidney is somewhere also really good. I forget where I'll look it up. But uh, Stephen, is that an accurate portrayal of what they're uh, he's at Hopkins, Doidney? Is that an accurate portrayal? Yeah, Eikenberry also wrote a book that came out recently, and you can see that he's tried to fit the history and the Biden administration into the framework of that book, as a lot of scholars do. But that's part of the problem with this piece. So, okay, this piece is the the intellectual foundations of the Biden revolution. That's so sure. Ridiculous. I mean, it's been six months, but and he hasn't really done any, anything revolutionary. But let's 1917, I don't necessarily want you guys to comment on on this first paragraph, but I do want to read it because I think for people who haven't seen the article, it, it will um, you know draw a picture. Uh, the unexpected four years of the Donald Trump presidency took U.S. foreign and domestic policies in troubling directions, frontally rejecting all the pillars of what he took to be the bipartisan establishment's foreign policy. Trump set the United States on a boldly different path. He rejected longstanding alliance commitments calling into question NATO and the security pacts with Japan and South Korea. He attacked international institutions and withdrew the United States from numerous arms control and free trade agreements, even going so far as pulling out of the World Health Organization organization in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, He embraced climate denialism and withdrew from the Paris Climate Accord. He was hostile to the promotion of democracy and human rights. He aggressively alienated allies while cozying up to a rogues gallery of despots, autocrats, and populists. God, imagine. 
and, and I just want to, I just want to underline just very quickly the sort of democracy promotion stuff. Like, obviously, we all know it's bullshit with regards to Iraq, but in terms of history, um, this political scientist Lindsay O'Rourke in her book has revealed that the U.S. tried to covertly overthrow regimes sixty-six times, and I believe in forty-four of those cases explicitly supported authoritarian or anti-democratic forces. So that's the type of democracy promotion that we're referring to here. So this is, I mean, th- this paragraph kind of makes it clear what we're talking about is is Donald Trump is a fundamentally different kind of president who broke American foreign policy, although, you know, here we are six months into the Biden administration. It seems like we've pretty much either continued deliberately or fixed uh, all the things that Trump uh, Trump did or, you know, kind of reversed them. Uh, but, you know, they, they go on to sort of lament the fact that uh, there's no Rooseveltian school of foreign policy you know there's there's schools for named after uh, alexander hamilton and and thomas jefferson andrew jackson even john quincy adams even john quincy even john quincy adams <laughs> and then there's a bunch of isms, of course. You got you have neoconservatism, realism, isolationism, and liberal internationalism, et cetera, et cetera, which seems indistinguishable from what these guys are talking about. But okay, uh, but there's no Rooseveltianism, and this is this is bad. And I guess so. My first uh, question to the two of you is, um, what is Rooseveltianism, and I, I think we should start with what they kind of lay out here. Uh, you know, we go into the piece, and and they write at one point that that Roosevelt is a colossus in U.S. history is a truism. Over the course of his unprecedented twelve years in office, he accomplished a revolutionary recasting of the United States domestic order and place in the world. And then you know, sort of goes through his record, and internationally, the United States went from being a, a regional power to a global military superpower, uh, leader of a multi continental wartime alliance um, more than anyone else Roosevelt laid the foundations for Pax Americana and inaugurated what became known as the Inter- American century here's the key part the Rooseveltian revolution was decisive in the development of modern liberalism but it built on its and internationalism but it built on its predecessors such as Theodore Roosevelt's new nationalism and Wilson's new freedom and was in turn built upon by successors including Harry S. Truman's Fair Deal John F. Kennedy's New Frontier and Lyndon B. Johnson's Great Society it was this this political project to which Biden has returned that brought the United States to its peak of greatness so I'm as I'm trying to figure out what FDR Rooseveltianism is. Uh, this is, you know, the the first statement of it, and it sounded the the, the first thing I thought of was, uh, you know, when they asked the now dearly departed Donald Rumsfeld where the WMD were, and he said, "Well, they're in the area around Tikrit and Baghdad, and also to the east, west, north, and south. Like we're all over the map here. Like what is Rooseveltianism? Well, it's all these things that came before, and then all these things that came after, but it's somehow distinct. What do you guys make of this?" Well, Stephen, this is your specialty. So uh, is that an accurate description of U.S. history, my friend? Oh, my God. Um, (laughs) So first of all, so FDR was president for a long time and um, underwent a lot of change. So they want to lump together, you know, FDR saved the capitalism or the country with the New Deal and then FDR set the foundations for American military primacy. Uh, well, that's true, except that FDR changed his mind fundamentally. In the 1930s, when he was focused on the New Deal, he was focused on the New Deal and even proclaimed a good neighbor policy 
toward Latin America, which is quite a significant um, thing for us to reflect on, in which the United States renounced interventionism, even in its own sphere of influence, um, in a way that it and just, didn't do before and really hasn't since. And I just want to add just an interesting historical footnote. That's where a lot of Latin American like culture, I think, came to the U.S., right? Wasn't Carmen Miranda from around that time and the Disney characters that were, um, I believe, of Latin American uh, origin? So this is, yeah, I, I, this is like this big shift in like Latin American U.S. cultural exchange. And a, a lot of these things that entered essentially what became hegemonic white culture were during this sort of 30s period. So it, it was a, I would say a high point of cultural exchange in the 20th century. Yeah, it was a high point of American identification as American, as part of the Americas. Um, and that seemed like it would continue for the 30s and even into 1940, um, given how much the country did not want to be part of the looming war in uh, Europe and Asia. Um, and FDR was part of that until FDR changed his mind, as did many others. But FDR made an explicit turn from being uh, Mr. New Deal to being Mr. Win the War and then pursued uh, U.S. military primacy. So, you know, just as a, and I'm not saying anything that's controversial. I mean, no, my this book is, basic. is new yeah. and controversial. And that's that's part. That's the point. This is, yeah, this is not, you know, this is just like any historian will tell you this. So it's all lumped together as one teleological Roosevelt in their account. And then it turns out that Roosevelt doesn't even matter because Roosevelt was only building on uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who was only, and then there was Woodrow Wilson, and then FDR, and then all the others until something happens. And this is, I think, the interesting part of the article that is not part of the article, uh, which is that they say that the transit, the, the tradition was breached after the 1970s um, by by Reagan and Reagan's successors. And there is no account of what that was. What was that breach? Somehow they were isolationist, I guess, because it culminates in Trump. And yet that's an incoherent account of Trump. The, the key line in the whole thing uh, is when they write and I'm quoting them building on Trump. And Obama administration policies, Biden has further elevated the challenge of China to the top of the policy agenda. So Trump is an isolationist, totally out of step with anything good and decent and American, except that Trump laid a foundation that Biden is building on with respect to China, which is like the number one issue today. It's totally incoherent, and I think it it offends my sensibilities in two way two ways. One, there's so much of this, basically, uh, there's for lack of a better phrase, historical bullshit that is constantly just reframed, like totally anti uh, historical historian. This is like Stephen said, this is a basic point that is just totally used for ideological purposes. Which you know, fine, we all do that, but it's just so against what every historian thinks. Uh, I would. I would add, regardless of political persuasion, this is, again, these are not controversial points, but it's just totally anti-historical. So that's offensive. And then it's also, and I don't actually mean offensive, obviously, but then it's also anti-empirical because as Stephen gestured toward earlier, uh, the, the military interventions project, um, which I believe is out of Tufts, um, has essentially demonstrated that 
25% of interventions in U.S. history since 1776 have occurred since the end of the Cold War. So I, I don't understand how anyone could reasonably put that in, in one, in, in, in any way, sense, or, or form as isolationist, and then two, distinguish Trump from these larger traditions. It's just absolutely incoherent. And then why is foreign policy publishing this? I mean, this is, these are these are basic things that editors should should be aware of, I, I, and, it, and it just shows a type of groupthink that allows one to to thrive in this sort of uh, sort of establishment. I think. This, uh, to, I want to get back into the piece a little bit, but I I, I think we will culminate with China because I think that's where the what the real parallel between Biden and Roosevelt is. But I'll get to that in a minute. Um, I, I just want to throw out some some phrases. It's a very long piece, so you know if people want to read it, we're not going to go through the entire thing here. Uh, Godspeed. <laughs> but, but yeah, really, good luck. Good luck with that. Uh, but I want to throw out some 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 a couple of phrases here from various parts of the piece. The Rooseveltian tradition is more relevant than ever because many of the central problems in world politics, ranging from nuclear proliferation and climate change to transnational migration and pandemic management, are problems of interdependence that spill across borders. Okay, fair enough. Uh, to address these problems, both domestically and internationally, liberal internationalists argue that cooperation and institutions are required, uh, which invariably restrains the freedom of everyone to some degree. Uh, I, I, I'm pointing out in, in the context of where this piece is being written as the, uh, the Biden revolution, like the Biden administration has been slammed rightly so for several months now for practicing vaccine nationalism uh, and, and you know, deliberately kind of not addressing the, the international uh, ramifications of pandemic management. Uh, but the, you know, we, we talk about the, the, pursuit of public interest in the successful functioning of modern industrial societies and the need for uh, interdependence and somehow liberal internationalism uh, is the way to do this. Uh, there's we later uh, they they write about the um, need to, well left to their own devices capitalist societies stratify uh, and modern liberal democrats view extreme inequality as a problem i don't know where this is coming from uh, but you know roosevelt talked about economic royalism and, and supposedly i guess we uh, we're doing something about extreme inequality at a global level um, you know there's a there's a whole there's a paragraph on um, you know the wake of world war ii modern liberals designed and implemented the international monetary fund the world bank and the general agreement on tariffs and trade, the last of which ultimately became the World Trade Organization. These international institutions provided a framework for reopening the world economy, paving the way for a golden era of sustained global economic growth and the spread Beautiful. of capitalism and its attendant prosperity to previously very poor societies all over the world. So I think, uh, You're as welcome, you guys were world. saying, <laughs> yeah, like as you guys were saying, there's, there's, a, there's a certain just, uh, you know, a historical nature to all of this. I, I thought maybe you could comment on that it's a fantasy it's a fantasia and Stephen, as someone who's like lived there the last few years in the blob what do you think that fantasia is and just everything that Tarek said you know i think this piece is even beyond um look a lot of people in the in foreign policy making um at least understand dynamics of power um this piece is totally mystifying on that score you know, if if what they want is um, 
to manage the problems of interdependence and coordinate things, then why did they just say, oh, it's great that Biden has built on Trump's legacy to um, elevate the challenge of China to the top? I mean, wh why this focus on, on China? They just kind of take it all as a given. It's not important. Um, it's there. It's all part of the project. And see, it's all has a nice pedigree um, from a comforting past. So I find this to be actually like, it's not the U.S. It's not coming from the U.S. foreign policy community specifically. It's coming from some um, professors who how dare you are not engaged <laughs> in recognizable questions of um, power. And I, I actually find that to be almost the scariest of all options. So what do you think that indicates? As someone who's been both in and outside the academy, because I think that's really interesting because I think it's an important question because so much of our public discourse on foreign policy is really driven by academics, is really driven by professors. So what do you think that says about the academy? Why did you leave the academy, Stephen? Why did you abandon us? <laughs> so I don't know about this, the particular case of these two authors. I do think that um, the academy has become introverted, um, in part because it's just a, such a cutthroat environment to be part of it, to like climb your way up to getting tenure and so forth. Um, there's very little incentive to engage the wider world, including even the policy world, which I think a lot of people actually want to do if they could figure out how to do that. And then, of course, you have to say it's not as though the policy world is like super <laughs> eager to hear from academics who are pontificating in the way that uh, that we've pointed to from this article. And, you know, you can spot very quickly, OK, this is an academic who's in their own head um, that is saying things of no relevance to the actual choices that we face. Um, so it's a, it is a two way street. But I think it's lamentable that these two realms have grown so far apart, and I do not know the way to bridge that gap um, except to try to create spaces that that literally do that kind of thing um, and can, can bring the two realms together. There are a couple more, just a couple more things I, I wanted to, to sort of throw at you guys to, to make you pull more of your hair out. Um, <laughs> but uh, along the lines of this historical fantasia uh, about uh, the greatness of uh, Roosevelt, Rooseveltian America, um, there is uh, there are in a couple of places, uh, you know, kind of very obvious mischaracterizations, I guess, of, or straw men uh, of the kinds of arguments I guess these guys are anticipating they might get uh, in opposition to their piece. For one, in, in one case, uh, they write, the America that brought unprecedented peace, prosperity, and security to the international system was the America brought into existence by Roosevelt's New Deal. Uh, had the laissez-faire and isolationist opposition to the New Deal, the United Nations, NATO, and other domestic and international projects been successful, the um, United States might well not have sought or been able to play its pivotal role in the great struggles of the 20th century. So I think there we have uh, the kind of false 
<laughs> you know, the, the sort of throwing around of isolationism in a way that that's sloppy and and uh, you know presents a, a kind of false choice between you know it was either this maximal international presence or uh, just retreating behind uh, the, the oceans and and doing nothing, uh, which I think is is you know fundamentally a, you know presented as a in a bad faith kind of way. Uh, later they write um, that. Uh, Overall, liberal democracies and their movements uh, have over two centuries of often difficult struggle expanded freedom, human rights, and mass prosperity in ways that are cumulatively revolutionary. During the 20th century, the United States played pivotal roles in thwarting and of subverting empires, including the global empire building of Germany, Japan, Italy, and the Soviet Union. This is so Left insane. <laughs> Left-leaning critics who characterize the U.S. system as yet another empire fail to recognize that it is won by invitation and that the number of independent countries in the world rose explosively during the period of greatest U.S. influence. Leftist critics and historians, and I'm pointing at the finger at you two now, <laughs> have shown that the glass of freedom has never been full, but they fail to acknowledge that it has become steadily fuller, that the United States has played a key, and that the United States has played a key role in filling it. Uh, by well, the way, there's again, no mention of Iraq or Afghanistan uh, in this piece. Or whatsoever. Iran or Guatemala or <laughs> the Congo or Chile or Lebanon or what have you. I mean, that was all by invitation. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, thank you. You're, you're welcome, world, for inviting us in. So, Stephen, what's your take on that? Is that good stuff? Would you teach that to your undergrads? <laughs> no, look, I think that finally makes sense of who this piece is aimed at because otherwise it's so unclear. And I also notice that they, they pepper the word restraint about in the piece. I think that's an attempt to try to say that our approach is the real way to get restraint as opposed to those who are calling for U.S. military restraint. Um, and, um, you know, they ought to be forced to actually cite somebody. I mean, I like that they called out like left-leaning whatever and included historians in that. That's awesome. But like, it seems like they ought to have to actually name some people, provide some evidence, and that goes for the entire essay. And I, I just say like, you know, <laughs> I am very liberal-minded when it comes to like what I think should be out in the public sphere. But if I were to write some correspondingly um, loose piece, it wouldn't get published. From it my perspective, like what would it? Po no, it would not get published anywhere. What would it have to be? It'd be like Charles Lindbergh is a hero, and then you know he wasn't listened to. I mean, it'd, right. be, it'd just be wacky, so insane. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, it would have to be like the caricature of isolationism, and then it wouldn't get published. So I think this also indicates sort of the the discursive world of the foreign policy establishment. That, as you as you, to put it generously, a loose piece like this. What is it? Six thousand, seven thousand words, easy. Right. It published in one of the major foreign policy journals in the country. Um, and I think that indicates uh, indicates something. We get, I think, in the last couple of paragraphs to the the real message here. And it's it's illustrative. Uh, you know, Stephen, one of the things you uh, mentioned, you know, as we were like talking about this piece before the, the interview uh, was the application of FDR's. Uh, vision of American kind of uh, or liberal internationalism, which rested on American military primacy, 
to a time when you know trying to trying to sort of impose that or superimpose that on uh, the Biden administration at a time when uh, the challenges that we face don't really uh, have military solutions. They're they're pandemics and and climate change and uh, things that that you know can't be bombed into submission. Uh, but we get to the last couple of paragraphs, and uh, I think it becomes clear the ways in which these guys want Biden or the the way in which they want Biden to mirror Roosevelt. Uh, they write the the problems that the Biden administration has elevated to grand strategic importance are a mixture of familiar and novel, building on efforts begun by the previous two administrations. Here again, sort of the incoherence of this. Uh, it has made the problem of the rise of China central focus. In responding to the Chinese challenge, Biden's liberal emphasis on rebuilding alliances, championing democracy and human rights, and promoting a national industrial policy is clearly superior to the realist libertarian and Trumpian emphasis on pulling back internationally and dismantling the modern U.S. state. The Biden strategy rests on the assumption that China, with its strong central government, booming capitalist economy, modernized autocratic model, and revisionist foreign policy, poses a full-spectrum threat that will require a full-spectrum response. In the same way, the aspiration of many to reduce U.S. power and impact is out of date and out of place at a moment when the global balance of power between liberal democracy and autocracy is unfavorably shifting. In the face of the novel and powerful Chinese autocratic challenge, the task for the United States, as Biden has succinctly captured, is to show the world that democracy works in solving problems. So I think effectively we want Joe to give us our Cold War back. Um, th that's the familiar structure, the one that makes it easier to talk about how, how wonderful America is. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's sort of comforting, I think, in a way to, to, uh, a part of the foreign policy establishment. At the same time, uh, you know, we are in a, a, a time when, again, the challenges that we really face, not only, you know, does, does a Cold War with China raise, additional risks of World War III, of a, some kind of a nuclear exchange. Uh, but it it manifestly stands in the way of addressing climate change or any kind of any issue that that requires a, a global uh, approach, pandemics, uh, you know, any of these things. It, it manifestly kind of prevents that. Uh, so I, I wonder, you know, where you guys, uh, you know, kind of, uh, land here as we, you know, kind of get to the point, I think, which is we want a Cold War with China. I wish they had argued that. I mean, that is what they're saying, but they provide no actual reasons for it. And I think that's what's maddening. And I also don't think it's going to work anymore. I mean, maybe there was a time in the past couple decades where you could just put an ideological gloss on what the United States was doing people would go, okay, fine, that sounds good. I'm reassured. And actually what they're doing with Roosevelt is very similar to what uh, a lot of people did with Woodrow Wilson a couple decades ago. You know, Woodrow Wilson was the template for the Bush administration. Uh, now it's just shifted up in time to FDR, who, by the way, was also carrying on the legacy of Woodrow Wilson. So what's the difference? Um, but, you know... Let's go ahead and have that argument about what to do about China, right? It's a multifaceted issue. It's not so simple. Of all the challenges there are, it's one of the more the more weighty ones. Um, but uh, they just kind of plop down a position and say, time to go back to the Cold War, time to lead the free world. 
and say that China poses a full spectrum kind of threat so we don't have to differentiate between the economic challenges that it poses, the human rights issues, and the military issues. So again, give us, give us some analysis of power, please. Um, but I think if they think that they can just uh, do the ideological uh, magic wand shaking that seems to have worked uh, for a couple decades now, if they think that's going to work in the future, I think they're wrong. And I think just to uh, build on that is that it, it really displays an intellectual exhaustion with this entire way of looking at the world, which is, I think, what the Roosevelt gambit that they're doing is trying to essentially replace, is that they, they're, they really don't have a program for what is going on. So they, they just want to return to the Cold War. And I, I imagine that this is something we'll be seeing in the coming years. Um, but uh, Stephen, uh, thank you so much uh, for taking the time. Uh, Derek and I, well, I'll speak for Derek. Um, Derek and I really appreciate uh, your being on uh, on the podcast, uh, particularly our inaugural episode. And, and just to remind everyone, uh, check out Tomorrow the World, uh, Stephen's new book, which uh, really... Um, uh, it provides a new understanding of the U.S. rise to uh, armed primacy and hegemony. So, Stephen, thank you. And the American statecraft program at the Carnegie Endowment. Check those. Uh, keep an eye on that. Thank you both. This was a pleasure. Thank you.